Good morning. It is a joy and a privilege to be with you here and open up God's Word to you. I'd invite you to open up in your copy of the Scriptures to our text this morning, Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Hear what the Spirit says to the church in the word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Please join me as I ask the Lord's blessing. Father, you have spoken to us in former days, to our fathers by the prophets, and in these latter days, through your very own beloved and only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask now that as we come to your word, you would speak to us, that you would direct us to Christ, the resurrection and the life, so that he might be glorified and honored and your church might be built up. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, I suppose many, if not all of you, have probably heard the famous quote of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, the only thing certain in this world are death and taxes. Now, while that might be true, I think there's probably other more certain things in this world, especially as we will see this morning in our text. But that brings to our mind a very important idea that should the Lord tarry, should Christ uh, not come in our lifetime, we will face death. Indeed, many, uh, perhaps all of us, have in some way, shape, or form in our lives, uh, had to deal with death already. Perhaps you have had a close family member or friend die. Children, maybe you have seen uh, grandparents die or other older relatives. And that often brings to our minds uh, many questions. Uh, What happens when we die? Uh, What will happen when Jesus comes back to those who have died. And if, you've ever, if you've ever asked that second question, you're in pretty good company because that's the question that the Thessalonian church was asking when Paul wrote this to them uh, back so many years ago. Uh, Paul, in addressing these Thessalonian saints, wants them to know what happens to Christians who have died When the Lord Jesus returns, he wants to instruct them, to encourage them in this 
beautiful and glorious truth. Now, the entire uh, book of 1 Thessalonians is really one of encouragement to the Thessalonian Christians. In chapter 1, Paul uh, greets the Thessalonians and tells them how thankful he is for them, for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for their example to the saints throughout Macedonia and Achaia. He tells them that when he came to them and proclaimed the gospel, he was seeking to show them the glories of Christ. He didn't come to them to preach the gospel for fame or monetary gain. He came because he loved to proclaim the gospel of Christ to them and and wanted them to see the glories of Christ. And he told them that uh, even though he'd had to leave hastily after he had uh, preached the gospel and planted that church in Thessalonica, he still loved the saints there and he wanted to encourage them. He desired to return to them and he was hindered. So he sent Timothy, his fellow worker, and Timothy had brought back uh, a report of the Thessalonians' love for Christ and their, their faith in him. And so Paul wants to continue to encourage them. And as we come to chapter 4, Paul begins to encourage the Thessalonian saints in matters of practical godliness. In the first part of chapter 4, he uh, tells them that he desires for their growth and sanctification. As they look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and love, they will seek to follow him more closely and grow in their holiness and their righteousness and their sanctification. And he says that he wants them to grow in their love for the saints, for their fellow believers, and to increase even more in that love. And then finally, finally he comes to this particular encouraging passage. An encouragement to the Thessalonians, reminding them that the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they have heard of, whom they love, he will return again, and the dead in Christ will be raised. Uh, The Apostle Paul, in this text, teaches this simple truth. All who are in Christ will certainly be raised when their Lord returns. You, dear Christian, who are in Christ, should you die before Christ returns, will certainly be raised at your Lord's return. And Paul explains this uh, using three uh, certain uh, distinct uh, categories here. The three things he wants to use to, to direct our gaze to Christ and to his return and to the resurrection. He wants to teach us first of the certainty of the resurrection. He does that in, in the first few verses, in 13 through about the first half of verse 15. And, and he wants to tell us about the circumstances of the resurrection. What will happen when Christ returns? What will happen when the dead are raised? And he also wants to tell us of the comfort of the resurrection. There at the very end in in verse 18. Three things, certainty, circumstances, and comfort. If you will, let us then direct our attention to this text so that we might see the glorious truths which the Lord teaches us. We see here the certainty of the resurrection. It is absolute and definitely certain, more certain even than death and taxes, is the fact that the dead in Christ will be raised. Look at the beginning of verse 13. We read there, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed brethren. Just by this very statement at the outset of the passage, Paul is teaching us of the certainty of the resurrection. He's telling us that the resurrection is a factual certainty. That's what uninformed implies. It implies that there are certain truths, certain facts which the Christian ought to know. Now, these Thessalonian Christians, 
it seems, were uh, at this time when Paul is writing to them a bit uninformed. You know from uh, Acts that Paul, when he was in Thessalonica, had to leave somewhat hastily. And so most commentators think that when Paul wrote this, perhaps he hadn't been able to disclose to them everything about the resurrection. He had taught them that the resurrection was true and would happen, but hadn't explained everything to them. And so they're a little bit uninformed. They don't know all of the facts, but Paul wants them to know, and he wants you to know this morning, that the resurrection is a factual certainty. Not knowing about the resurrection is ignorance. It's it's being uninformed. And not knowing about the resurrection uh, is detrimental to the Christian. Not knowing all of these facts is is harmful to the Christian uh, because it prevents us from grieving properly. You see, that's what Paul says in the second half of verse 13. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep. He uses this picture a euphemism of sleep here, which we will touch on a little bit later as well, to direct the Thessalonians' attention and our attention to this beautiful fact that death is not something which we ought to grieve about in the same way that others who are outside of Christ might grieve about. He says that in the rest of the verse. He doesn't want them to grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, the world does not have hope, true hope, for life after death. There's no certainty there. If you ask pretty much anyone who's outside the church what happens after you die, they say, well, I hope maybe I'll get to heaven. Or they might say, well, I don't believe anything happens after we die. I'll just disappear into nothingness, and there's no hope there. And so if their loved ones die, they have no hope of ever seeing them again. They have no hope that those Uh, Loved ones are in uh, a better place, even. There's just this vague kind of wishful sentimentality that those outside of the church have. And Christians are not to have that kind of uh, grief over the death of loved ones. We're supposed to grieve as Christians. And you know, grieving is not wrong in and of itself. Of course, our Lord Jesus also grieved, didn't he, when his friend Lazarus died. He came to the tomb of Lazarus and Jesus wept. He grieved. But he did not grieve as one who had no hope. He grieved as the Lord of glory who was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so Paul here in in this first verse wants to teach us that the resurrection is a factual certainty. And he will then unpack that in the the, uh, succeeding verses here. The resurrection is a factual certainty. And knowledge of the resurrection enables us as Christians to grieve properly, to grieve the fact that death is a consequence of sin. Death is part of the curse which came upon man when our first father Adam sinned in the garden. The Lord promised him that if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And Adam did, and so we do. And so we understand that there is something uh, inherently wrong about death. Because it's part of our curse. And yet we also know that death is no longer our enemy. It no longer has a sting. Death is the messenger which summons us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can grieve properly as Christians. And so I would exhort you as, as we continue to look at this text, think about that. Keep that in mind. Death is no longer something to grieve about as if we had no hope. 
It is something to grieve about because it's an effect of sin, and yet it's also something to be hopeful about because it will bring us face-to-face with our Lord Jesus Christ should he tarry. Well, the second thing that Paul wants to teach us about the certainty of the resurrection is seen in uh, the phrase which he uses to describe death. He calls it sleep. He speaks in verse 13 about those who are asleep. Uh, He speaks in verse 14 about those who have fallen asleep. See, by using this euphemism, the apostle is telling us that the resurrection is certain, even more certain than you waking up in the morning. Now, we know that there is a possibility that when we go to sleep tonight, we might not wake up here on this earth. We might close our eyes and rest, and when we open them, we will see Christ. There's always that possibility. But normally, when you go to bed at night, children, you wake up again in the morning, don't you? That is the normal course of things. And so Paul uses this picture of sleep to describe the death of Christians. It's as though he was saying that you will go to bed, or these saints have gone to bed, but then one day they're going to wake up again. Children, maybe you've experienced something where you're driving in the car late at night, and you're looking out the window, and all of a sudden your eyes get a little droopy, and your head starts to sag, and you fall asleep. And the next thing you know, you're in bed. Your mom and dad are tucking you in, and maybe giving you a kiss on your forehead and saying, okay, good night. That is what death is like for the Christian. Our bodies will go to the grave, but they will one day, as certain or even more certain than the fact that you wake up tomorrow, they will rise again from the dead. Death is merely sleep. And it also teaches us of of the power of Christ over death. Remember in uh, Mark chapter 5 when Christ raises the daughter of Jairus. He comes to the people who are mourning and he asks them, why are you mourning? She's only asleep. To Christ, death is nothing more than sleep. To Christ, it's, it's calling people from the grave is the same as walking over to someone and shaking their shoulder and saying, get up. Even easier for Christ because he, at the word of his command, summons the dead from their tomb. Paul wants us to see the certainty of the resurrection in this picture of sleep. The dead in Christ are merely sleepers, and they will most certainly wake up on the last day. In the interim, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, and so those who are dead in Christ are in glory now, worshiping the risen Savior, but they will one day also be reunited to their body at the resurrection. Why is this? Well, because of the third reason for the certainty of the resurrection, the most glorious and blessed of all. The resurrection is as certain for us, or the resurrection is certain for us because of Christ's resurrection. Look at verse 14. Paul writes there, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Our resurrection is certain because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I love the way that the, the ESV translation uh, translate this, translates this verse. Um, literally, in the Greek, Paul actually kind of poses this as an if-then statement. He says, if we believe that Christ rose from the dead, then we know. But in stating it that way, Paul is emphasizing the sense we believe. And the ESV does a great job of bringing that out. Paul says, if we believe, and you most certainly do believe that Christ rose from the dead, how much more sure can you be of your own resurrection? You know for a fact, we are certain that we know that Christ rose from the dead. Therefore, we know that we will also be raised. Paul always ties the Christian's resurrection to the resurrection of Christ. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He doesn't just jump right into the doctrine of the resurrection there. He begins it by saying, I want to remind you of the gospel which I preach to you and which you believe. And he explains it to them. And then he gives them evidence even that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead and appeared to the apostles and he appeared, appeared to the 500 He gives uh, evidence for the believer so that they might really, truly, factually, in all ways, in all aspects, know Christ has raised raised from the dead to give them certainty that because Christ has raised from the dead, so too the Christian will be raised from the dead. But why is that? Why why is Christ's resurrection the certainty of our own resurrection? Well, that's because of the beautiful doctrine of union and with Christ. We are united, joined together with the Lord Jesus Christ, both soul and body. Children, you know that we live in a country called the United States of America. The United States of America is is a bunch of smaller areas called states who are all joined together into one larger country. They are united, joined together. The Christian is joined together with the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith in him. The Lord Jesus uses the picture of a vine and branches to describe this to us. Christ says, I am the vine and you are the branches. You know that if a branch is cut off of a bush or a tree and it falls down on the ground in a few days, at least in the middle of summer, it will be all shriveled up and brown because the heat saps all the life right out of it. But if that branch is connected to the trunk of the tree or of the bush or of the vine, that branch has life in it. And as long as that trunk continues to provide life to the branch, the branch will grow and grow and survive. Christ uses that picture to describe our union with him. That as long as the vine provides life to the branches, they live. And Christ will never die. And Christ will always provide life for those who are united to him by faith. And so the branches will always grow and live. That is the certainty which we have, we who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, have life eternal because of who Christ is, because of what he does, because of the life which he gives to us. And that includes our souls and our bodies. The Westminster Larger uh, Catechism has a beautiful statement in uh, answer 86 
Speaking of believers and their death and and their presence uh, with Christ in glory, and it speaks about how the body is still united to Christ, and so it rests in the grave like a bed until Christ brings it back to life and unites the soul back to it once again. That's what Paul tells us this morning, Christian. You are certain, or you may be certain, of your resurrection and of the resurrection of all of the rest who are in Christ because they are united to Christ and they have his very own life imparted to them. We who are in Christ, who have fallen asleep in Jesus, will certainly rise from the dead. So Paul has shown us that it's a factual certainty. He's shown us uh, that it's as certain as waking up from that beautiful picture. And he tells us it's a certainty because of Christ and who he is and what he's done. And he tells us that the resurrection is also certain because it's promised by God in his word. Look at the beginning of verse 15. Paul tells the Thessalonians, and you as well, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. The resurrection is a certainty because God has declared it to be so, and he has promised it in his word throughout both the Old and New Testaments. Jesus, in in speaking to the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees when they tried to trap him, reminded them that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead, which implies that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would one day rise from the dead. There's also an amazing passage in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel is, is told in his, in his uh, revelations that he will be raised from the dead, that those who are righteous, who are trusting in the Lord God for their salvation, they will be raised from the dead at the last day. So the Lord has promised all throughout Scripture, through the Old and even into the New Testaments, to us this morning, those who trust in Christ have certainty that their bodies will be raised from the dead. It is a promise of God, sealed through Christ. And all who look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith have the assurance that they will indeed be raised again. This is the certainty which Paul seeks to give to the Thessalonians and seeks to give to you this morning. You may be certain, dear saints, That the resurrection is a reality. That if you are in Christ, you will be raised from the dead. And that all of those whom you know who were in Christ and who have already preceded us in death, they too will be raised from the dead. And Paul could have just stopped there. And I think that would have been more than enough for us to know that the resurrection is sure and certain for us. But he doesn't. He keeps going and proclaims to us the glorious truth of the circumstances of the resurrection. The circumstances of when this will take place. And they are very simply, if we can summarize the whole thing, the resurrection will take place at the return of Christ. When the Lord of glory, who came once concealed, uh, taking on human flesh and, and being a baby and living a a normal life, although a life of perfect obedience to God, this Lord will return again. This is the great and blessed hope of the Christian, the return of Christ. Paul tells us this is the circumstance 
of the resurrection. But he breaks it down and gives us more details so that we might look forward to this in hope and in comfort. What are these details? Well, first, Christ returns publicly. Look at the beginning of verse 16. We read there, The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now, when we think of Christ's return, I think our minds ought to immediately go back to Acts chapter 1, when Christ ascended into heaven. And there, as the disciples were, were looking up into the sky in amazement and marvel at, at this great thing which had just come to pass, they're told by the, the two men dressed in white, the angels, um, why are you still looking at the sky? Why are, you, why are you waiting around? This same Lord Jesus, who has ascended, will in the same way return. Well, how did Christ ascend? It was public. It was open. It was witnessed by the 500. How will Christ return? If it is in the same way, it will be public and open and witnessed by all. You see, this is one of the glorious truths of our faith. The Lord Jesus Christ returns, and when he does, every eye will see him, and every knee will bow to him, because they will see the King of glory returning in splendor and majesty for his people. Oh, this, is, this is a wonderful and, and beautiful truth for us. Christ descends publicly, visibly, but he also uh, descends and returns publicly, audibly. It's noisy when Jesus comes back. Look at the rest of verse 16. Christ descends from heaven with the shout, a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Paul says here that three very loud things will happen when the Lord Jesus returns for his people. There's going to be a cry of command, a shout. There's going to be the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet. Now, maybe some of you have read in books or seen in movies a scene where the king comes through town or he's coming to town. What always precedes the arrival of a king are men with trumpets sounding forth the alarm or or, or the, the cry that the king is coming. They play a loud sound, a majestic sound, to alert everyone in the vicinity that royalty is approaching. Here in this text, we see that Christ's return to earth is accompanied by the trumpet of God. Not mere human brass, which sounds out its tinny notes. No, this is a heavenly trumpet. The very blast of the sound of God coming forth, alerting everyone to the fact that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, the glorious Savior of the church has come back. But it's not just a trumpet sound, it's also coming with the voice of an archangel. The archangels spoken of in Scripture, chiefly Michael, the great prince of the people of God, who, incidentally, is also mentioned in Daniel chapter 12 in connection with the resurrection. I don't know about you, 
But when I think of the voice of an archangel, I don't imagine a whisper. I don't think when this archangel speaks, when he proclaims, the king is coming, the king is coming, that it's going to be very quiet. No, I think this archangel is a good and proper herald for the king of glory. And I think he will shout with joy and praise for his savior to alert the entire world that Christ is returning. It's the voice of an archangel. It's loud and glorious. And that glory points to the glory of Christ who is returning. And also accompanying the return of Christ is the cry of command, the shout, wake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, for the king of glory has returned. Lazarus, when he heard the command of Christ, Lazarus, come forth. His soul was immediately reunited with his body, and he came forth. He could do no other because his king had summoned him. When Christ returns, Christians, you will hear his voice should your body rest in the grave. Or you will hear his voice should he come in our lifetime. And you will immediately know that your king is summoning you. And you will go to him. Because Christ's return is visible and audible. We will know for a fact that he has returned. So that's the first circumstance, the return of Christ. But what else happens here when Christ returns? Well, the second circumstance is the resurrection itself. Christ coming back, summoning his people, raises the dead. We see that in the the final clause of verse 16 and then through 17. We read that when Christ comes, the dead who are in Christ will rise first. And here Paul assuages the fears of the Thessalonian church, it seems, because they were uninformed previously about what happened with the dead. And and it seems from this context then that perhaps they thought that the dead in Christ were going to miss out on something, that they wouldn't get to see Christ return, that they would miss out on the glory. No, Paul says, the dead in Christ actually get more of the blessing if that's if that's possible to say that, because they get to rise first. Christ returns and calls his people to himself, and the dead leap forth from their graves to go meet him. The second thing that happens is the living, too, are raised. Not their bodies from the grave, but their body and soul raised from the earth to the sky. Look, we see here that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then We who are alive, we who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. The dead are raised first, and then the living are raised up in heaven with them so that we might come to Christ our Savior. We don't have to stay on this earth and wait for him to come to us. We enjoy and love for our Savior, get to run to him immediately. Maybe some of you have a dog it's full of energy. You open the door and he comes running out to you, jumps on you. We get to experience something of the same when Christ calls us to him. We don't have to sit there and wait. We can run to him and love and joy being united with our Savior. We meet him in the clouds, in the air, being together with him. 
heard one man mention here and in connection with this. How interesting it is that we get to meet Christ in the air. You know, in Scripture, Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. But the fact that we meet Christ in the air here shows that every single one of Christ's enemies has been placed under his feet. He returns the completely victorious king and summons his people to himself. Well, that's the second circumstance, the resurrection, both of the living and the dead. And then the third circumstance, a beautiful circumstance, the eternal fellowship which the believer has with the Lord. There at the very end of verse 17, so we will always be with the Lord. Always, forever. As Psalm 23 said, we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We have fellowship with Christ. Union and communion with the living Savior for eternity. We get to see Christ face to face. We get to sing the praises of our Savior throughout eternity. We get to have a sweet fellowship with him for days without end. If that sounds boring to you, I think maybe you don't understand how great and glorious Christ is. Because that could not be anything more exciting and joyful than seeing the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. The one who loved us and gave himself up for us. The one who died on our behalf, bearing the wrath of God so that we might have fellowship with the true and living God. We get to see him and spend time with him. Rejoicing in him even as we are with him. We get to do it forever. We will always be with the Lord. Eternal fellowship. Eternal joy because Christ himself is with us and Christ himself is our joy. Paul has then shown us the certainty of the resurrection and he's shown us the circumstances that surround this resurrection which we are promised in scripture. Well, here at the very end of the text, Paul calls us to something. He calls us to comfort because of the resurrection. Look at verse 18. It's very short, but it's potent. He says, there, therefore, Encourage one another with these words. He says, in light of the certainty which you have, in light of the fact that you now know how this will unfold in part, in light of the fact that you know you will see the risen Savior, comfort one another, encourage one another. The the word encourage here is uh, also the word for comfort. So Paul calls us, to come up comfort. Uh, he, he commands us. This is an imperative. This isn't a suggestion. He doesn't say, if you feel like it, comfort one another. You know, if it comes across your mind one day, you might offer comfort. He says, remind your fellow believers of the great hope which we have in Christ. Remind them of, of the great salvation which we have in Christ. Remind them that Christ himself died and was raised. And therefore, Christians will be raised 
on the last day. Remind them that Christ will return. And what could be more comforting to a grieving Christian than that? That, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we are not our own, but we belong both body and soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is great comfort, and Paul calls us to comfort with those words. And we're supposed to comfort each other. There's a sense of of fellowship even here, a reciprocal comforting. It's not just supposed to be church officers which comfort the flock. It's not just supposed to be older, mature saints who comfort uh, younger, immature saints. No, it's supposed to be the entire body of Christ pointing each other constantly to the Lord himself, reminding them of who he is and what he's done so that they might once again bring to mind the great hope which we have. It's a reciprocal comforting. It's a comfort which we are called to because Christ himself is the resurrection and the life, and we therefore have great cause for comfort. Those are three things which Paul shows us, certainty, circumstances, and comfort, but what exactly are we to do with this other than to comfort and be comforted? There's a number of things, I think. First of all, believe this helps us in the day and age in which we live, in the broader evangelical world in which our churches exist. There is uh, something of a pseudo-Gnosticism present in our current age. Um, There's a lot of well-meaning Christians who love the Lord Jesus Christ, but who seem to forget this blessed fact that the body is also united to Christ. And so they think, well, it doesn't really matter what happens after we die. Our souls will go to be with the Lord, and, and that's the hope and comfort which, which we have. And it's true, the Lord saves our souls. And in the interim period between death and the resurrection, we will be with the Lord. But we ought also to remember that God made man body and soul. And he redeems man body and soul. And so the body is not something which... We are happy to be done with, which we just cast to the side at our death, and then we live as disembodied spirits for the rest of our life. The Lord redeems all things. All things are being made new, including the bodies of men. And so we can look at this text and and remind ourselves and teach others that the Lord loves the whole man and has redeemed the whole man, or is redeeming the whole man, that the bodies of Christians will be raised from the dead, and will be united back to their soul because God has made man body and soul. Again, uh, Westminster Larger Catechism 86 speaks of that union of body and soul and the fact that this is a blessed and joyful hope for the Christian. But this text also, I think, should equip us and prepare us and and strengthen us uh, against other forms of false teaching beyond this kind of pseudo-Gnosticism. There are some Christians who, like um, Hymenaeus and Philetus, are teaching that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has already returned. Uh, Hymenaeus and and Philetus were two men uh, whom Paul and Timothy confronted in 2 Timothy, who were teaching that Christ had already returned. And this was making shipwreck of the faith of many Christians. They said, oh, we've missed it. How could we have missed it? Well, this text teaches us that we will not miss it. Be encouraged, Christian. 
Christ has not yet returned for the second time. You have not missed anything. The resurrection of the body is still a future hope. The return of Christ is still a future hope. Uh, This false teaching, which would say that Christ has already returned, is very easily disproved by this text. Christ will return visibly and audibly, and all men will see him, and all men will bend the knee to the Lord Jesus, making way for the king. And finally, finally we take this text and use it for what Paul expressly states we ought to use it for, comfort. We must, of course, be tender and gracious towards those who grieve. We can so often in our, our zeal for comforting people and in our love for them and, and our hopes that we might be able to impart uh, some form of encouragement to them in a time of grief, uh, we can come to them and make statements which are theologically true but perhaps not helpful in that time. But we can always go to our brothers and sisters and put our arm around them and offer them the words of comfort Christ knows. Christ, too, has grieved. Christ is the great high priest who can sympathize with you. Even in this, look to him. He's a good and kind Savior. Trust in him even in this time. We ought to comfort one another. Perhaps one of the greatest examples of this comfort, which Paul speaks about here, which I have seen, occurred when just not too long ago, uh, a shooter came to a little Christian school and killed six people, three nine-year-olds and three older saints. One of the nine-year-olds was the daughter of one of our fellow PCA ministers. And in the midst of that grief, he made the statement that even through tears, they await the hope of the resurrection because their daughter belonged to Christ. That's such a beautiful example of the hope which we have in Christ which the hope we have of the resurrection, which he provides for us, which he has promised to us in his word, which he promises to us here, which is certain because of Christ's resurrection itself. It's a beautiful example of the hope which Christians have looking forward, knowing that Christ will return in glory, visibly and audibly, raising the living and dead to himself so that they might have eternal fellowship. It is a beautiful example of Christian comfort in a time of great grief and suffering. This is the beautiful truth of the Scripture. All who are in Christ will certainly be raised when their Lord returns because they've been united to Him in faith. and He's a great Savior who will accomplish all which He has promised. So let us then look to Him in faith and hope and comfort in times of grief so that we might be a comfort to one another, a light to the world, and faithful followers of our Savior Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we do thank you for these blessed words of truth and comfort to us. We marvel that we have so great a salvation 
that through the death and resurrection of Christ, we have the salvation of our souls, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of our bodies, and the eventual resurrection which we have in Christ. Give us eyes of faith to see him. Lord, help us to trust in him more and more. When we go through the valley of the shadow of death, direct our gaze to him so that we might have comfort and we might be a comfort to others. Do this for your glory and honor, for the magnification of Christ's name and the proclamation of his glory through the whole world. We ask for his glory and honor. Amen.